Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is, of course, the, the Talking City podcast from the Manchester Evening News. You will be able to download this as a podcast, and please subscribe, give us five stars, etc. And we're here at Urbis, which is the National Football Museum, doing it live in front of a live audience tonight. Go on, prove that you're live. Yeah, a live audience. And there will be microphones in the audience. I don't mean they're hidden strategically or anything, but if you put your hand up as we go along, you'll be able to ask questions. There is also a hashtag which is on the strap going round, which is a stop for a second, which is hashtag Talking City, I think it says. It's going round now. Tweet your question for... We will get there eventually. Uh, For the panel using... Here we go. Hashtag Talking City Live, right? So you've got it. So if you want to do that, then we can collect them or there will be microphone. So let's uh, first of all introduce our esteemed panel tonight. Appropriate songs, fine, okay? So let's start with the king of all Geordies, Dennis Stewart. (laughs) Dennis Stewart, king of all Geordies. Whatever you want, Dennis. The next one of our esteemed guests is, uh, has got his own song as well. It is the one and only Mr. Sean Golter. Yeah, when I was in the press box the other night uh, for the Hoffenheim game, there was a a fan came up and and talked to a couple of journalists who were sat next to me, and they said, uh, "You're scribes, aren't you?" And uh, and the journalist went, "I've never been described as a scribe before." Well, these two who are about to come on now are scribes, right? They are journalists. They are the two main Manchester City men on the Manchester Evening News. They are the chief city reporter, uh, Mr. Stuart Brennan, and his sidekick. Shall we call him that? Yeah, why not? Simon Baikowski. I'll stay at this end, Dennis. Since I'm, I'm hosting the event tonight, I'll stay on my feet, but you can sit there and, and enjoy the show. Now, there are questions that I'm sure you've got, and feel free to put your hand in the air, and we'll take the questions at any time or do that hashtag. But I'll kick off by asking a few questions. Now, obviously, City uh, lost at Chelsea last week, um, which is a, a rarity, isn't it, for the Blues? So how do the panel, and we can walk... Uh, go along from one end to the other so we'll start with Sean how did you feel about the defeat at at Chelsea and what what does it tell us if anything about the title race about City about anything you want well it shows that Mike Jack everyone can hear me Mike Jack yeah Yeah. well I think it shows that all the other teams have gotten that much closer and you'd be funny all day studying the city and understand the city 
Studying city. <laughs> Studying city. Hey! Yeah, I think all the other teams have been, you know, observing, looking at City, studying City, uh, to seeing how they can, can get closer. Uh, teams have gotten closer. And, and for me, when I've, when I've looked at Chelsea, I thought, well, they're not, they're not too far off, as in the improvement they've made. Um, and, I, and I feel that, you know, I was surprised, but then I wasn't surprised, because when I look at Chelsea and play in other teams, I thought, they're actually a lot closer than, than, than we think. Um, so... Uh, I, I was surprised, and then I also wasn't surprised if, if that's an answer. Um, but you know, we're 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 still a team that's improving under Pep, and and players are still understanding what what he's about. So, yeah, Chelsea Chelsea is is getting closer. Dennis, that was a short version. <laughs> no, I just think the team's evolving. And I think as Sean quite rightly says, you know, because we've got so many coaches, good coaches in the, in the league, they're analysing all the time and they've got all the stats and the data. So therefore they can set out systems to compete against us. You know, so what we, what Pep has to do and he has been doing over the last four, 10, 15 years of his career, he's been involved in these teams and I'm a great uh, um, uh, sports business uh, book reader and I've read both of Pep's, Pep Revolution, Pep Evolution, when he went from Barca to Bayern, Bayern to Man City and he's evolved, he's, he's, he's approach to, to coaching and evolved from setting up these teams and developing individual players and to me, you know, the way he is and because he's such an intense person, he will evolve to the next level as well so I don't think we've got any problems. I'm not going to ask these two about the game specifically in terms of the football. I'm going to go on to the other big talking point which came from that game, which was the racism or the alleged racism that happens against uh, Raheem Sterling. And obviously you two are journalists and uh, there were and have been since that game um, debates about whether journalism, whether it be written, whether it be on TV, whether it be on radio, whatever form it takes, social media, has in some way contributed either consciously or unconsciously to the way that Raheem Sterling himself has been treated which is I think a perception a lot of City fans have had and different ways that things that he does and have done to him have been reported and other players of different coloured skin would have um, so I just wondered as journalists yourself what you've made of the, the various different elements to this story that have evolved over the last week or so well, I think is that working? I think what Raheem's done is by coming out with a statement he did this week, he's focused minds, he's made everybody think about it. You know, um, people who have never perceived themselves as saying anything racist have had to have a second think about what they're writing, what they're saying, the language they're using. Um, obviously, what went on at Chelsea is completely unacceptable. Um, and Raheem was absolutely right when he said that uh, that atmosphere has, has come about because some sections of the media, I mean, I'm not, not saying we're completely guiltless, but I don't, I don't think we've contributed to this. And I've written pieces about this, that the way Raheem's been treated uh, in some parts of the media has been absolutely appalling. You know, and it's always written. It's, it's not sports journalists, let's get this straight. These are news journalists who do these things. Because um, sports journalists... By and, you know, a lot of them have met Raheem and they know that that, that picture that's, that's been painted of him as, as sort of 
brash and cocky and flash and somebody who goes out and flashes his money around is completely wrong. Jamie Carragher made the point the other night, you know, from knowing him at Liverpool, saying that was a wrong perception. Um, I, I, I've met him plenty of times and he's a really likeable lad. He's fa- in fact, he's the only footballer I have ever interviewed who thanked me for doing an interview. And he, he does it every time. Whenever you speak to him, at the end he'll say thank you. You think, what are you thanking me for? You know, it should be the other way around. Um, so that, that perception, and you think, well, where does that perception come from? And that perception has come from things that people have written about him. And the people who've written those things are people who know nothing about the kid. And it, it, it you know, it annoys me. It annoys me that, that, that people are sort of perverting our profession, really. And I, I think the people who try and do a good job, including sports writers who work for the same same organisations who are writing these things they're ang- believe me they're angrier than most people uh, because it, you know it affects them it affects the way they're trying to do the job so yeah I mean I think Raheem has, has done it's a brave thing for him to do to stand up and say that but hopefully it'll be a watershed moment and we can start moving forward and you know start making progress in, in, in something that's an absolute scourge in our society not just in football Simon do you want to You want to add anything to that, Simon? I'm not sure I can follow that, but um, but yeah, I mean, Raheem's statement was absolutely brilliant, and I think it. Hopefully, I will sort of look at things when I'm writing things. I'd like to think I've not written anything that's sort of has a negative slant towards it, but I don't think anyone in this room could say that Raheem's had a fair press, really, because some of the stories that have been written about him have, have just been completely off the mark and and terrible and I think hopefully what comes from this is that everyone has a little think and everyone just yeah thinks about the issue and just before they before they commit and go out and do a hatchet job on on Sterling or or anyone because I thought it was quite good that Sterling's the example he used with Phil and Tosin, you know, nothing to do with him, whereas there's a long thread of, of stories with Raheem. Um, but you would just hope that everyone going forward um, stops and thinks. I've always thought kind of as good as as good a player as Yaya Torre was when everyone was describing him as like a beast. And yeah, he, he did those long busting runs that were brilliant, but he also his touch was so good and his passing was so good and that sort of didn't get picked up on as much and we need to have those kind of conversations in in football and if Raheem can help us to have them then he's kind of even more of a brilliant human than we all think he is and I know the only thing I'd add to that um, is that obviously I, I grew up uh, not not right at the start of my time, but uh, I saw Alex Williams playing in goal, and uh, and I would go to home and away games, and I suppose plenty of them in the room here tonight who've done the same and seen Alex come out to a lot of bananas being chucked on behind the goal and that was just disgusting even in its era it was terrible it was a different era but to think that that ever happened and still happens at football it makes me wonder as much as we all want to be optimistic if it can ever ever truly uh, be removed because racism isn't just black white it's not just it's it's about religion it's about um, you know homophobia 
I mean, there's not been a single um, current footballer who's come out uh, because of the fear of what's going to happen if and when that happens. I hope that happens soon because uh, this type of racism or, or ignorance, if you like, I think that's probably a better word for it, applies right across the board. And I'm, so, I'm sure, Sean, you, obviously you're a, a black player, so, so colour racism is at the centre of you and you must have, I'm sure, suffered it. But it isn't just about colour racism, is it? No, I mean, as players, you you just play. You just want to prove prove how well you are, how good you are, um, and and get on with it. So, you know, you want to just challenge yourself and and move up the move up the ladder in terms of the levels you're playing and playing at the highest level. And so, my journey, I have had I have had issues, um, and I I take my hat off to Raheem because I think it's absolutely brilliant. And then. You know, Could I, you have smiled the way that Raheem did when that happened to him? Well, I'd say to you, in my journey, that's, that's all I did when I had those situations happen. Because a player in that position, you can't win. You can't win. The only way you can win is just smile it off. And only now that Raheem is a winner for smiling it off. Because if you look back at videos with, with black players having that situation over the years, you would see some of them uh, would, would smile it off and, and nothing would be sad about it. But it's only now, I think, where you know, we're evolved to a place where we're having a conversation. And, you know, it's, it's a reflection of the wider you know, world, if you like. So it's not going to be something that will be resolved, but I think it shows a huge growth to say that we're having this conversation. I think this is a little different from previous times. I think, you know, this is... The fact that you can see uh, on the program it was Gary Neville um, speaking about it and saying sometimes he he sort of cowardly uh, didn't address the situation when they perhaps they should talking about Sky and perhaps they should have as a program uh, and this tells me that there's this is now in a space now where these conversations again will they'll, they'll have these conversations so I I think it's a watershed moment that can help and move forward. But I, do I think it's going to resolve it? Right up, you know, no, it's going to take time. But I think this could be a, a big moment. So uh, I, I'm like, well done to Tareem. We're trying to be positive and optimistic here. You, you grew up in Bermuda. Yeah. You're now a Mancunian. Have you noticed in the... Uh, and here's a Mancunian, isn't he? You know, uh, in the time that you've been here during your life, have you seen enough improvement to encourage you that this can eventually be part of history? You know, I think it's a lot of um, uh, black players that will be saying, well done to Raheem, and I think this is a, a, a watershed moment that can slowly move us forward. You know, I think it can move us forward not by perhaps 1% or 2%. I think we can, this can, you know, have us move by, you know, 10 or 15% in terms of a jump. So I think this is a good period. Well, let's hope that that positivity is, is accurate and that the world does change. I can't help thinking it probably never will completely be perfect. It, nothing ever is, but at least if we're moving in, in the right direction. So let's move on to a, another subject, which is the Champions League. Before we... Uh, we've got Dennis's book, sir, just so that you all know. <laughs> That's why I came out to display these books. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They're I'm sure Dennis will sign them. And we'll announce the winners of the quiz a little later on, and you can find out which team has won a set of Dennis Stewart's signed books. Thank you, Sean. Right, let's ask... <laughs> let's ask about the, uh, the Champions League. 
Obviously, City now qualify top of their group. We know that they can play one of four teams in the uh, the last 16. The, the Champions League itself is full of so many different issues. The booing of the anthem, uh, the, the dislike, it seems, from a lot of City fans of UEFA for various different reasons. FFP being one, uh, another one being the, the treatment of City fans at CSKA and everything. And there's the argument about whether City fans have really took to the Champions League and, and, and whether they really want to win it and is it about other competitions Dennis you, you've been a director as well as a player you've played in Europe what does Europe mean to you what should it mean to Manchester City and what should it mean to the City fans well I think if you want to be um, known as one of the, the, the top clubs uh, around the world you have to win the major tournaments I mean not, not just domestic but uh, European international um, and the Champions League the way the format's made now and the money that's coming in not only to to our Premier League but also in PSG with Qatar Bayern uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid you know that, that's really setting yourself up against the best in Europe and probably you can say the best in the world because the European League is the best in the world so if you want to challenge yourself against the best you have to perform in the European Champions League. It's as simple as that, you know. So uh, why why have City not City fans not warm? I mean, I don't know if I speak for you all. Uh, let's just let's just ask how, how many people in this room, show of hands, would rather win the Premier League than the Champions League? Right, hands down. How many would rather win the Champions League rather than the Premier League? So you can see that the, for those listening into the podcast, obviously the, the vast majority, I would say, in this room were, were definitely for the Premier League. Yeah, but also you've got to understand that these guys watch a Premier League game every week. You know, your Champions League is, 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 is split. You get maybe, what, eight games, is it, <laughs> to win? So in essence, these guys want to follow their team all season, not just in blocks of the season. So I can understand that. You know, when I was a director, we used to wonder why we never got a lot of support in the domestic cup competitions. We tried. I mean, we were first to try a fiver, kids for a fiver, you know, and it never made any difference, you know. So the the the, the, the fans want the the Premier League on a, they want their weekly diet of that competition, and they want to follow the league, follow the, the position in the league. Whereas the champion, the Champions League is bits and bits and blocks. So I can understand that, you know, but uh, we'd all like to win that because we're going to be. Um, alongside the best in my best in the world which is the European Champions League we have to be close to winning it so you what would you rather have I'd rather play a league Not saying that I would like to, to win the Champions League as a, as, a, as a backup, but I mean, you know, that's putting yourself against the best in the world. And the guys, every week, they want to see the, 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 the best, because we've got the best players in the world in the Premier League anyway. You know, so that's what they want their weekly diet of, and I can understand it. And p- particularly now with all the television coverage that's available, you know, and, and the, the costs, these guys, they've got, they've got to work nine to five or whatever the, the job is, and you know, they, they haven't got unlimited cash. You know, so they've got to be more selective, especially the amount of games that's played on television now. And the European games might be the one where they, they, they sort of say, well, well, we'll pay for the Premier League, maybe go to a later rounds of FA Cup or the League Cup, but the Champions League is a, is a game too far. Cash-wise, I'm talking about, you know, you've got to respect, you've got, that's never been taken into consideration about the guys who've got to put their hands in their pockets, not only week in, week out, but twice a week, three times a week with it, sometimes. Stuart, you, you're in press conferences. 
listening to what Pep's got to say, and he tries, and we've heard him try to rally the supporters to come and make more noise, to stop booing the anthem, to be uh, more proactive in terms of trying to get City to where he and the owners want to get them to. Do you have any sympathy with Pep? Um, you know, his, his message, dare I say at the moment, isn't really getting across in the way that Pep would want, is it? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, you got to think. You know, he, he's a, he's a manager who's who's been at Barcelona and Bayern Munich, two clubs who are all about winning the Champions League. That's his pedigree. That's what he's been brought up on. I mean, obviously, he wants to win everything because that, that's how he is. But the Champions League is the holy grail for Pep. You know, he's he's got a good record in it, but he's not got a record that reflects his greatness as a coach and as a manager uh, and I think if he could take City to it that would sort of put the the cap on it you know he, he's, he's already taken two clubs that are steeped in in European Cup pedigree uh, well he, he's taken Barcelona he hasn't taken he, he didn't manage it with Bayern Munich um, so to take City there do it with City would be a, a huge feather in his cap uh, he won't admit it and he still he still says that the Premier League is the priority that's the one he wants to win more than anything else um, but I think secretly this season if you gave him a choice I think he would take the, take the Champions League I understand City fans frustration with UEFA we, you know we, we all we all feel that and some of the things they've done down the years are, are just are just ludicrous but at the end of the day it's such a big competition and it is the next step you know this City team have, have won the Premier League everyone knows that the best in the Premier League now they need to prove they're the best in Europe. Football is all about taking it on to the next challenge, and that is the next challenge for City. Well, just before I ask Simon a question, if anybody wants to join in this and ask a question, put your hand in the air, and uh, the two ladies over there will bring a microphone over. Don't ask a question without the microphone, because obviously it's a, it's a podcast, so we want the listeners to be able to hear your question. But I'll just before you ask a question, I'll just ask Simon this one. You're the me- youngest member of the panel, Simon. You've grown up where, where some of us um, grew up watching uh, Dennis and, and, and players of, of even before that, where you're was either not even on the horizon or only really occasional so it was never really part which is what Dennis was sort of getting at really about not being a regular part of existence but you in your generation have grown up with the Champions League being what it is this huge competition and as a journalist you're able to be that a little bit more dispassionate in the way that you look perhaps at City even though you're the City reporter uh, and, and look at what they're doing what do you make of where City are in the Champions League fans the club, the players, and what they're trying to achieve and how they're going about it. I mean, I can sympathise with Guardiola wanting to get a bit more of a reaction because that is what he thinks will help the team. I'm a bit uncomfortable with sort of trying to tell fans what they should be doing and what they, you know, because ultimately they're spending their money and you know they're perfectly entitled to to do whatever they want with their games and and with the money i sort of think that city as a team might have to have success before it becomes more popular with fans and and also these tend to, kind of debates always tend to happen around the group stages and the group stages aren't that exciting because as a competition it's pretty bloated it's you know the Premier League as Dennis was saying is week in week out and there's always action and excitement whereas it's only really the business end of the Champions League which is a few games so I, I kind of you know I can get why there isn't that much excitement around it but as I'm going to call you very kindly here a youngster okay. right? 
because he is relatively speaking, isn't he? As a youngster, do you do you think? Oh, I'm so excited because it's a, trying to with your your football hat on, really excited about the Champions League, or do you get more excited about the Premier League? I think it varies game by game. Like I think the atmosphere in the City Liverpool quarter last season um, was electric, and when City were going for it in first half, it was amazing. City Hoffenheim last night I wasn't thinking this is going to be one of the games of the season it kind of whereas you know the derby in the Premier League is always one of those games that you you get up for it just varies game by game and the further City go in the competition in the Champions League the more exciting things will be but you know you can you can understand why there isn't always the excitement because it isn't always exciting Okay, well, that's that's Simon's answer. Now, we're on first name terms tonight, so if you just introduce your first name, sir, and then ask your question to who you want to ask it to. Okay, my my name is Edward. Um, It's really a question for all the panel. If we're talking about the Champions League, it's a two-part question. I know that uh, Pep has said that he doesn't intend to go into the transfer market in January, but bearing in mind the amount of injuries that we've now got, and unfortunately, at the moment, Gabriel Jesus just isn't able to sit the ball in the back of the net. Do you think that we would perhaps try and buy two players? One to help Fernandinho, because my own opinion is he's starting to perhaps look a little bit jaded. And second of all, uh, a striker in case Sergio is not back up to it. That's the first part of the question. And the second part... You sound like Garth Crooks here with this question. <laughs> well, the second part, I'll make it quick. When we played Liverpool away, we changed our tactics a little bit. Do you feel that now we're getting to the later stage of the Champions League, away from home, we should perhaps park the bus a little bit as we did in Liverpool against the stronger sides? Right, who's going for part one? Well, I'm going for part one. <laughs> <laughs> Gabriel Jesus, um, I think what he's doing, uh, what uh, Pep is very good at, is developing players. I mean, I don't think it would be expected. I think Jesus is next week, next season's player because he's been brought in from, from Brazil, young 20-year-old, he's now 21, and he, he, don't forget, he, he had the injury, broke his leg for the, was it the first, or his ligament for the first two or three months. So he's been in, inducted into the, into the culture, and he's still learning, he's still learning the game. And I think he's got tremendous ability, especially in and on the penalty box. He's different to Sergio, but he's still a box, a box player, and I think you'll see the best of him next season, not this season. And I think, I'm happy that he has his odd game. I mean, I don't think if Sergio would be fit, he would have played the other night. So he's got, a, he's got an opportunity, like Phil Foden how to get a few more minutes under his belt and get the, to know what the, the, uh, the league's all about, the games are all about, the opposition's all about, the pace of the game's all about, what Pep's looking for in a team formation. So we just don't be overcritical about him at the moment. If he's the same next season, you can, you can tell what you think. But part, give, of the question, part of the question was, uh, I don't think it was necessarily saying get rid of Gabriel Jesus. I'm not paraphrasing here, but I think that's what you, you were saying. But does City need maybe a third striker? Yeah, but if, if you look at if the, what um, Pep had at Barcelona, occasionally he'd, pay, he'd play the, the, shadow, the shadow number nine. I should number and play Messi as a centre forward, but not up there in this whole. He does it a bit with Raheem, and I think the flexibility, the flexibility that he's offering the players to do that, 
gives him options that he has to, to switch players. And now he's brought Mares in there. He can play Ram him up front, Mares one side, Sane down the other side, even Bernardo Silva down the side. Occasionally he's made substitutions and brought Bernardo Silva on. He's played up front as a free, what they call the, the ghost number nine. So he's, he's, he's thinking all the time. As, as to what the best to get out of. But all, all the time, these players who are playing these various different positions, they're learning about the different positions. They're learning how to play over there. They're developing their own abilities to see things, to, to see things what happen. And I'm quite happy when I see it, see it happening. So the short answer then is you wouldn't sign another striker? I'd put, I'd put it that way. I wouldn't. But if one come available at a top quality, don't forget the top quality... And he, he feels he needs a finished article. Go, don't forget, uh, I think Sergio signed one more, de- one year more deal, has he? Yeah, I think so. So yeah. we've got him for this season and, and one more. Might even be two more, I think. And also, if you look, if you look around his team now, and because I'm in business, um, the succession planning he's got in place, which is fabulous. He's got Danny Lowe to, co- to cover for Carl Walker. He's got Fabian Delft to cover for Mendy, or the two of them to share. He's got four centre halves, Stones and Laporta to take over from Otto Mendy and, and Vinny. And then you've got the, and I agree with you. One thing I do agree with you about: we need someone like to replace Fernandinho, because I think he's fantastic. Gundogan did it last night, but not quite the same. But where can Gundogan become a Fernandinho? I don't know. But if you look at the rest, we've got succession planning all in the team. Let's let's get Sean on about Fernandinho then, because I know, like me, you're a big fan of him, aren't you? Yes. Well, Fernandinho is is we definitely cover for him, and uh, I think your eyes is, is is spot on in terms of the you know. He's playing week in, week out. And Fernandinho, I believe, is 31. Um, Might be older, actually. 33, sorry. So, and I can tell you, I was fit at 33, but that's when I just started to get little injuries. And you do start to tire. You start thinking about the running, and you think, well, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. So what I'm saying is, without a doubt, I think that is one area I think we need to find a replacement. Um, and... You know, do we have someone in the, in the, in the academy coming through? Probably not. Um, so I think that will be the, the, the number one area to, to... Well, we could put Addison in, in midfield. <laughs> you know what? On that subject, though, Sean... But, yes, definitely we need to, to find a, a, a replacement. Uh, on, another player, sorry. On the potential academy subs, uh, alternative, Simon watches a lot of the, the, the EDS and youth like I do. I mean, there's, there's a lad called Gomez who's potentially in Fernandinho's position. Uh, there's another one gone out on loan. I mean, is there something in the club you think could eventually replace Fernandinho or that the moves for Jorginho and Fred were, were signalled as, as being senior replacements for him, weren't they? <laughs> Yeah, um, I I think the fact that they went in for Jorginho and Fred showed that Pep wanted like a ready-made replacement and if he could have got Jorginho in summer, you've seen how good he's been for Chelsea. Um, I think City, I think City have got a good chance of winning the Champions League anyway because on their day they're as good as any team in Europe, I think. But had they signed Jorginho to have that extra cover for for Fernandinho, the squad would just be that that little bit stronger. but I'm not sure there's anyone coming through at the moment. There was, there's been a lot of talk about Claudio Gomez. Um, I can't say I've seen a lot from him in the, the academy games I've watched, but it's, it's hard sometimes when players are, like Phil Foden looks a lot better when he plays with the, the senior team with like world-class players around him. So, 
So maybe there's hope and Pep likes Douglas Louise, but he's not got a work permit. So if we're talking January signings, I think it would be somebody experienced who could come straight into the team. I can't remember what the second part of your question was, sir, but Stuart's going to answer it for you. <laughs> Do, what, what, what was the question? Have you still got the mic? Get the microphone back to you. Go on. What was the all, second all, one? The second part was all, was all about the tactics away from home, particularly against the better side. Stuart, yeah, that's yours. I remember. Thanks for that, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think people misunderstand Pep. I mean, when he when he came in, we all said he's got this way of playing and he sticks to that way of playing no matter what. Well, he doesn't. He adapts all the time. And he, he kept saying repeatedly in that first season when it wasn't so good, he, he was saying... I haven't come here to teach the Premier League anything. I've come here to learn from the Premier League, learn how to... And you can see the way he's adapted. He's adapted to the English style. You know, he, he plays differently. And those, those games against Liverpool last season were big learning curves for Pep. I think he realised that you can't, just, you can't go to Anfield on a European night and just play the way City were playing. They're so good, Liverpool, at doing what they do, pressing you high, hitting you on the break. And, and City were wide open for it. I, I remember thinking, and I don't know, I talked to a lot of City fans before that quarter-final thinking that City are tailor-made for the way Liverpool play. If they don't get it absolutely spot-on, they're going to come a cropper here. And getting it absolutely spot-on at Anfield in that kind of atmosphere and when you've had what happened to them on the way to the, the game happening as well. So I think when they went there in the league this season, we saw it, we saw it different. You know, Bernardo played deeper. He, he was a little bit more pragmatic and City should have won the game. You know, if Mahrez hadn't put it over the bar, they come away from three points and things look very, very different in, in the league. So Pep's, you know, he's adapting all the time. And I, I think that, that's a good sign in terms of the Champions League going forward. The only weakness, as far as I can see, is, is what we discussed, you know, Fernandinho, there's no backup for him. If he gets an injury, if he's out for any, which he's got now, we don't think it's a serious one. But if he's, any, if he's out for any length of time, I think City have got a real problem. Right, we'll take one more question before we take a little break, but hold your questions and we'll do them again after. And you can use that hashtag, which will come round again in a second. And obviously there'll be opportunity to buy Dennis's book um, and, and to have selfies and, uh, and, and to bow down at these two great guys and Sean and Dennis as well. So, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, you can do that in a moment. But let's just get one more question. What's your name, sir? Uh, Bev, Bev Morris. Right, off you go. Uh, every week we seem to have problems with referees making decisions what's the panel's view on bringing in VAR as soon as possible who wants that one Sean's yep. going for it yes VAR is it, you know we're never going to get every decision right but what it will do if we're getting 90% of the decisions right then it's going to bring us closer we'll get 95% because there's still an element where we could sit on as a panel and I say that is not a penalty and then it says that's a stonewall penalty so we're always going to have those situations but I think VAR certainly will clear up a lot so the, the sooner it comes in the sooner we'll get closer to 100% Is there any dissent from anybody on the panel or are you all in agreement? No. They look like the three wise monkeys up here, don't they? The, the only thing I would say is what are fans going to moan about and what are journalists going to write about <laughs> if, if they start getting the decisions right? It's, yeah, but there'll, all, the there'll always be those decisions that are not clear-cut. So VAR is supposed to eliminate the clear-cut ones, really, isn't it? They'll always be the debatable ones, so it's never... Don't worry, Stu, you're going to stay in a job for a little longer. Um, and we'll continue with this chat uh, the other side of a short break when we'll also reveal the winner of Dennis's sign books. 
perhaps we, I don't know whether we should do that before or after you start selling them, Dennis. Um, but anyway, we'll do that and we'll also find out who's won the seats in the Tunnel Club. So uh, take a comfort break, charge your glasses, we'll come back and... Right, okay, so we're back. And we're all recording everything. You're listening to, of course, uh, Talking City Live, which is the Manchester Evening News podcast. Uh, it is downloadable. It's on SoundCloud. It's on all these different ways that you can get uh, podcasts. So please subscribe. Give us a review, a nice one. Put five stars on, and it's every week. It's usually one of these two and me. Sometimes it's three of us. Uh, sometimes it's Ash, who's quietly sitting in the corner over there. Usually it's Rich who presents it, and we always talk about City and whatever the events are. And this is a live version taking place at the National Football Museum at Urbis in central Manchester in front of a live audience. Unrehearsed. Right, okay, so we're going to go to some questions now, which I've, uh, I've lost for the moment. Now, I've got my questions here. So these were the ones that were tweeted in with the hashtag, the appropriate hashtag. The first one comes from Darren Cook. Uh, would you trade, this is obviously to Sean, would you trade Gillingham 99 for a Premier League trophy? Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, can you come back to me? No. <laughs> Do you know what? No. 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 A player wants to wants to achieve, you know, playing in the Premier, playing and winning the Premier League. But my my journey uh, and report that I've gained with the fans, I would not replace that. I would not change that at all. And you know what? I mean, I could ask you all, would you change the journey that City have been on? You know, would you have preferred constant success? No, what I would say, what I would say, and endorse what Sean's saying, if we, if he hadn't have done what he did at Gillingham, we wouldn't be anywhere near the Premier League. I had the absolute honour, I'm sure you remember this, uh, Sean, of, of hosting a, a dinner for the Variety Club of Great Britain a few years ago, which we called Remembering the Heroes of 1999, Where Would We Be Without Them, which Mark Holsey, the referee, came to, Tony Pulis came to, and pretty much the whole of the team that day came to. And I think that team, your team, is loved as much as any team that's ever played in Manchester City history. Yes, I mean... Rightly so. I mean, when we showed up, we didn't know if we was going to draw, lose, or lose. <laughs> no, it was a fantastic journey because, you know, I, 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 I recall sort of playing and thinking, we've got 30,000 and we're in League Two. You know, I, 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 I was amazed by this. Like, the fans are just there every week, every week. And, and to just have that journey with the fans was, for me, it was truly amazing. Absolutely, brilliant. absolutely. Well, thank you for playing your part. Uh, I grew up watching uh, uh, Dennis's team playing, and that 76 League Cup final was an early highlight for me. And your team was full of flair, uh, and, and you, Dennis, obviously I'm going to say this because you sat here anyway, but I'd say even if you weren't, were one of those players that I really admired as a young player, a uh, skillful, passionate player who could do just about everything and actually could play in that front three. When you think back to that, that era, do you remember it with the kind of fondness I do? Yeah, well, I'd question because it was a it was a team that won the trophy, and your career lasts eight, ten years maybe. And what you're looking to do is you win a major major trophy in your career. It's no good 
when you finish your career, you've got nothing to look back on. I know came out, earned a few quid, but you know, you need a trophy, you need some recognition. Um, you know, you've got, I think in those days, it was four opportunities, two domestics, the league and the international, uh, the league and the international, and you needed to have something that you can take for the rest of your career because that is your memory box. And you know, that one obviously, 76, was fantastic for me. 73 won the FA Cup with Sunderland, 76 with League Cup with City, and when I went to New York, we won the North American Soccer League Championship there. So every major club I've been with, I've, I've won a major trophy. So that, for me, is great to look back at. But obviously, the 76 was a bit special, considering against my hometown team, you know, and uh, a team that rejected me as a 15-year-old. <laughs> You know, I haven't played for Newcastle schoolboys from 12, 13, 14, and 15, and then uh, someone gave me the opportunity and uh, managed to uh, to get a transfer to City. And just a fantastic occasion against Newcastle. And, you know, there's a story. My, my dad and I got friends and family. I probably knew more in the Newcastle end in that particular game than I did in the City end. I mean, so many people have grown up with me. And when they, uh, they're leaving the game, my dad turns to my brother and said, don't tell anybody who I am. <laughs> Must have thought you were going to get mugged. <laughs> but it was just me memories like that, you know, spectacular. It was a winning goal. It was won the trophy for the uh, for the supporters, for the club, for your teammates, and it was just something you put in your memory box. I mean, we all take uh, flying now as a normal part of daily life, and James Cooper obviously knows all about that as he gets stuck coming back from Paris. But the first flight I ever took was as a 19-year-old to fly to New York City to watch Dennis Stewart play for New York Cosmos. And that was a fantastic f feeling for me to watch one of my heroes play for New York Cosmos. 60,000, Franz Beckenbauer was in your team, um, and, and I'll never forget that, even though it's all become a bit more routine then. Uh, now I should say than it was back then but that, that was great for me certainly as a fan now the next question is uh, from Paul I don't know who Paul is but do you want to put your hand up Paul wherever you are not that it matters on the podcast <laughs> but um, Paul Paul is the good looking one in the middle we'll say that and you'll never know whether he is or not right so uh, what so the, the two the two journals the two scribes can start on this one uh, what does life after pet look like for City Oh. For those listening, Stuart hands the, the microphone over to Simon. You, you'd like to think very good. Um, I mean, first off, he's, he's staying until 2021 at least. Instead, he's open to extending that contract further. But also, he's brought in young players that look like they're going to play the majority of their careers at City um, and you've got your Sane, Sterling, Jesus, um, De Bruyne still, Edison, all those players that are going to come through and they're going to be there once Pep's gone and they're going to have had Pep's training for five, five years or so. So um, you would like to think that a club that has been run so well by the owners um, everything was set up to get Pep but they will continue after Pep's gone I don't think Guardiola would walk away if he felt he was leaving a mess behind kind of thing and you look at Bayern and Barcelona after him they've continued to do well even if they've been missing um, although them. Bayern have struggled a little bit haven't they yeah 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 but you know they've, they're still alright aren't they yeah, but what they do, they didn't have in place is what Pep's got in place for us, succession. And that's what, like, you just bought another 23-year-old, uh, the USA national keeper, to, to play alongside Edson, so we'll cover that place. So every position now is covered by a high-quality high player, and I... 
And in terms of post-Pep, I mean, again, I'll come to Stuart because I'm not going to let him get away with it. Uh, Mikel Arteta seems to be favourite in people's minds at the moment. It, it might be that uh, it, there's another alternative from within the camp, or of course we know that one of them, Patrick Vieira, has moved on to Nice, um, but he's still thought of as part of the, the... Do you think that it'll be a succession after Pep? I think that's what they're looking to do. I mean, Vieira's been talked about for years and years. You know, he, he was such an impressive figure when he was here. He was brought in at the end of his career as a player because of the influence he had on the dressing room more than perhaps, well, more than he did on the pitch. Uh, he was such a big voice in the dressing room and he helped, helped City through, you know, difficult periods in that, in that, that season. Um, and from that moment on, they had him earmarked as possible future manager uh, and that's that's why they've, they've, they've progressed him the way he has you know he went to New York City to get experience perfectly happy that he's now back in European football getting more experience but in the meantime Mikel Arteta as you say has come in and we sat down with Dominic Torrent out in New York in the summer when City were out there uh, we went up to their, their training complex uh, and he spoke really well about Arteta how much he reminds him of a young Pep uh, in terms of his football intelligence uh, in terms of his drive and his passion, uh, you do get the feeling that, that Guardiola is, is a bit of a one-off. You know, he's, he, in my mind, he's a genius, um, but he's, he's, he's such a driven individual. You know, you can see it. You can see it in everything he does. Whether Arteta's got all of that, I don't know, but he's certainly got a lot of it. And I think I think he's another one who who comes into the uh, into that category. But like Simon said, uh, I I worked out that that team last night had an average age of 23. Uh, and you can see that front three of Sterling, Sane, Jesus terrorising defences for years to come. You can see Kevin De Bruyne maturing into a more of a holding midfield. I think he could play that, especially as he starts getting older and his legs. And but he, I mean, he's still a young lad; he's only 25 or so. But you know, as he gets older, he'll. Uh, I think he could play play that that deeper position. Um, and you've got Phil Foden coming through. He's such, he's such a young team. He's lowered the age profile, Pep. And, he, you know, he's, he's planning to be here for some time and then uh, pass it on to, to an appropriate person, perhaps Arteta, perhaps Vieira, perhaps somebody else who comes along. Do you, do you think, and I'm just going to throw this in as, as a wild card because I'm a big fan of him, he's still playing, do you think Vincent Kompany could be a potential manager because he's a leader, he's di- you know, you're shaking your head, Dennis, you doubt that one. No, I think he's more, he's more in the uh, business side of it, from what I can gather, he's got an MBA business, business studies, wasn't it? I think more on the business side where he gets involved in the administration uh, and the running of, the running of the, uh, some, some part of the organisation, I would suggest that seems to suit him best than being on the on the on the uh, on the training field i spoke to his wife about it i asked her i had her on my radio program and she was saying things like he could end up being the the president of belgium or something you know that that he could go in that and you can imagine that can't you shy retiring chap you mean (laughs) (laughs) right we've got a question which the two players i don't think you two can answer this one but who's your well you maybe you can right but who's your both of you who's your this is coming from um liam day and the other one is anonymous. So where's Liam somewhere in the room? Cheers, Liam. Who's your favourite former teammate? Tell me me. I didn't play. 
<laughs> well, in the board, it was Dennis until he said, Sean scored 103 and I scored 107, so we've got to get rid of him. <laughs> no, uh, my former teammate was, was Jared Weekins. We got on very well. We, um, I guess we had a very similar way in how we, how we sort of uh, spoke with people and, and those of you that know Gerard was Gerard was just a normal, down-to-earth guy, and, and I, I found him just like me. So we got on very well. And uh, I, I felt he was very intelligent because, I say this, because when we used to train, I couldn't score when he, when he marked me. <laughs> so, so he was highly intelligent. He, he just, he, he and, and we saw that when we even played in the Derby games when he'd mark Venistra out the game. And for me, it was a surprise because he just knew where strikers wanted to be. Certainly those box, those strikers that like to be in and around the box. Uh, so Gerard Vickers was, you know, we got on very well. Have you got one, Dennis? And Dennis. Yeah, mine's Asa. Asa, Asa Hartford. I mean, because be, being, being a greedy forward player, I want somebody who's going to give me great passes so I can score great goals. <laughs> and Asa was great on, on both left foot and right foot, you know. Talk about those a bit on the radio just recently about uh, players who don't, are only one-footed. You're not playing Franz Beckenbauer, who had the best right foot in the world. Uh, but Asa, two-footed, brilliant. His vision was great. And he could, he could stick his foot in. You know, occasionally we had a, a, if there was a defender who'd uh, sort of get into our forwards, he'd say to me, you get him first and I'll get him second. Because the ref is going to let, he won't do us both, but he'll get us, let us off, you see. So I'll, I'll do him first and Asa does him second. So the defender knows what he's into, you see. So it's a little combination, it was a combo. Um, Bruce really, he was a hard little man. I mean, really was. But his ability, passing, I mean, probably near the end of his career, he was scoring a few goals as well. He's all looked about eight, six to eight goals a season, but uh, that wasn't his strength, but his passing ability was second to none. So I'm thinking for you, for you, Stuart, it's either Peter Gardner, maybe, or Chris Bailey, your favourite team, or, or of course, Simon, but uh, perhaps we shouldn't include somebody currently. Who's your favourite teammate? Well, can I say my favourite teammate from these guys was also Asa Hartford, because my first job in journalism was covering Stockport County for the Stockport Express. And in, after about two weeks, Asa took me out and got me absolutely smashed out of my head. <laughs> and it was a night before a game. He was player-manager and it was about five o'clock in the morning and we were both slumped across the table and he said, I think I've just done a hamstring. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be fit for tomorrow. <laughs> so, Ace. Simon, yeah. anything you want to contribute to this? No. no. <laughs> right, let, let's see if there's anybody else in the room. Right, we've got a question here from, uh, from the, ta- the winning table. Right, just give us your first name and ask your question. <laughs> Yeah, my name's Anthony. Uh, it's a light-hearted question to uh, Dennis Stewart. So, Dennis, uh, how's your good friend uh, George Potter? This is this is the former Hartlepool player, am I right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Anybody remember? Could you want to tell the story, Dennis? Yeah. When I was uh, before I signed for Sunderland, I was on at uh, um, Sunderland. I was on a, a recreation administrative management course at Teesside Poly. You know, you had to get qualifications to look at what you're going to do after the game because there wasn't that much money in the game so there's quite a few guys from the northeast at the at the course and one of them was George Potter who played for Hartlepool got in great no problem and then in the FA Cup third round we happened to come against Hartlepool at Main Road and uh, you know what it's like when the games you know when your competition's against you you don't you don't have your friends across the other side of the uh, the other team and it was an incident where you sort of the ball ran in and I slid in and as I was getting up 
George reacted and kicked me in the back of, back of the leg. So I got up in red mist and uh, <laughs> my head found his head and <laughs> he went down in depressed fracture of the cheekbone. But fortunately, thanks for the, uh, well, I, I obviously got a red card, but fortunately the referee sent him off on a stretcher. <laughs> So, you know, it was one of those moments in the, uh, when you, the red mist comes down, I'm afraid the red mist comes down. But uh, George is fine now, by the way. He's in good shape. <laughs> good to hear. And I think we won 6-0, didn't we? Something that day. Yeah, the worst thing yeah. was we won 6-1, and we were 3-1 up when I got sent off, and I'd scored two. I could have had a hat full. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a question at the back of the room there, if somebody wants to get a microphone. Oh, hang on. We've got, we'll come to you in a second, sir. Uh, what's your name and what's your question? Uh, my name's Patrick. I'm um, actually visiting uh, out here from Sydney, Australia with the uh, Sydney Blues. Now, uh, question is for Sean. Um, I asked this question uh, when we had the trophy tour a couple of weeks back to our special guest, Paul Dickov, and asked him what was his um, toughest opponent that he ever had. And he said back in his Arsenal days, it was uh, Paolo Modini. I wanted to ask who was your toughest opponent you ever came across uh, during your career, whether it was the city or anybody else? Well, the toughest opponent I had was Martin Kieran. Uh, he was when he was at Arsenal he was a much more improved player and he was you know after the game you, you, you sort of I find myself like all scratched up and I'm thinking why am I got all these scratches on me and Martin Kearn was a sort of player well we all know what he was like the ball could be at the other end of the field and he's still grabbing you and holding you and I'm like mate the ball's down there so he, <laughs> he, he always you know he got his foot stuck in and, and certainly his time at Arsenal he improved a hell of a lot in terms of he didn't dwell on the ball whereas probably when he was at Everton you can, you can win the odd ball off him because I think he thought he was better than what he was but when he's at Arsenal he became much more improved so he kept it real simple gave it to the quality players and therefore looked a lot better and was a better player but he, he was an absolute rash now Yepstep was the best defender at the time but when we played against United, I, when Yep Stemp was there, I actually was just coming on for like 10, 15 minutes. But he was certainly the best defender at the time. But I never got a, a good 45 minutes to play against Yep Stemp. But Martin Kieran was, was the toughest at the time. Yeah. I've still got scratch marks from him. <laughs> well, you, Dennis. I think he still does the same thing on match of the day. <laughs> I think not in any individual, and I've said this many times when I've been asked the same question, but if you guys, maybe some of you a bit too, too young to remember, the, the, the Liverpool team in the mid-70s, they were a fabulous system, played 4-4-2, 4-4-2, 4-4-2, all the time. Uh, a great system. So when, when you used to get the ball wide, I never got a chance to expose the fullback because the wide, the wide midfield player would challenge me first. So it was always 2-1. And it was the hardest team as such to break down to get out. So I never really had a problem with any individual, but that as a team unit, uh, team shape, was my most difficult opponent. Right, we got. Was that was a question at the back there, wasn't it? Just, just to warn you, whatever your question is, I'm going to bring in Simon and Stuart on this one. So, what's your question? What's your name, by the way? Uh, uh, hi there, uh, this is Keith from uh, Marple. I'm asking the question on behalf of my brother, who's li listening at the moment in Houston, Texas. Right, great. Uh, he sent this. Uh, hi, Martin. To... I enjoy you. Hi, Martin. A big hand for Martin. Come on, guys! Yay! Good day. Oh, that's Australian, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> His question is, uh, what can we do uh, to keep Jose Mourinho at Manchester United for many years to come? Right, Simon. That's yours, Stuart. Don't let him duck this one. Stuart. Well, he's doing his best to get out, isn't he? Let's face it. 
Uh, Phil Jones is doing a, a decent job of getting him out as well. I think he was flying James Cooper's plane back as well to. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I remember when when the two managers started, we talked about this this huge showdown between Mourinho and Guardiola. You know, we were going to get. They called it the disease in Spain. The, the relationship between the two of them was so toxic. And it just hasn't happened because Pep's absolutely blown him out of the water, hasn't he? You know. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where Mourinho goes from here. He, he's starting to look like yesterday's manager. I mean, I, I've always rated him as a manager, but he's uh, he's struggling, isn't he? He's struggling. Uh, just in You're all loving it, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I've just got a view because if you look at Alex Ferguson, he bought players to fit a shape and system that he wanted to play. He bought players. Pep buys players to fit the system he wants to play Mourinho and the career has just bought players and expected them because I don't know what shape and system they're playing change it every week so I don't I don't know whether that's maybe as Stuart says you know he's had he's had his time and maybe he can't he can't evolve I, th- I think I think one of the problems at United I don't want to bang about them too much but one thing City have got right is that they've had a director of football from the start Brian Marwood was the director of football they gave him a different title because director of football had a bit of a a bad stink about it in English football at that time so Brian Marwood was the director of football in all but name uh, and then of course Cheeky came in to pave the way for, for Pep coming so City have had a have had a plan from going back seven or eight years nine years United haven't had that United have just gone lurched from since Fergie left they've lurched from manager to manager and United have always had this thing as it'll be alright we're Manchester United and uh, you know there is there is that little bit of arrogance about it um, and I think that's where they've fallen down City have been planning and planning and planning and you, that that you can see the way the team has evolved you know you can see Mancini's players are in there we've even got players from pre-Mancini you know still Vincent Company's still there um, you can see you can see Mancini's players you can see Pellegrini's players and now we've got Pep's players who have capped it all off that team is, is a product of what City have done over the last nine years United's team is a product of leaping from manager to manager without any kind of planning going on behind it. Are you trying to convince me that, that United didn't sign Sanchez and Fred because they actually wanted these players and not, <laughs> not because they were trying to steal a march on two city targets? I don't believe that for a second. I think there's one, one quote which was made by one of the executives of Manchester United which amazed me. It said, success on the football pitch will not affect our commercial revenue. And I thought it was an amazing quote, you know, because surely they go hand in hand, that's right, or unless brand Manchester United, they think is stronger than, is stronger off the field than on the field, you know, I thought make a team good Right, let's move away from that subject, eh, we've had enough of that Right, we've got another question but with a microphone, because we don't want to do it without a microphone, so uh, again I'll say for the purposes of the podcast, the good looking lad in the middle of the room at the back there have we got? Have we got? So you're both good looking, right? Whichever one wants to go first. Do you want to go first? Yeah. Specky four eyes, right? Go on. <laughs> See you outside. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm Neil from Crew. Um, <laughs> um, 
football's full of key moments and a um, bit of a fan of nostalgia. I like to look at where we are now and think that there's been a lot of key moments that have taken us to, to where we are now. Uh, might be Gillingham, could be um, you know, Mancini's appointment, could be taxing. And I'd like to ask each of the panel really what they think was the key moment that has brought us to where we are now. I'm going to start with Simon here because he's been left out for a bit. So don't think you're getting away with it, Simon. But you three can think about this key moment. Um, I, I like to think that the moment they signed Rubinho was massive just because that whole sort of transfer deadline day it was around a time when transfer deadline day was becoming a thing and we had this takeover and then suddenly it was like City are major players and they've got this amazing Brazilian who can do wonderful things and it, it you know it, it didn't turn out to be a massive success um, at the club but just in terms of lifting the the profile of the club and saying that City are major news now, they're here to challenge and, you know, the whole thing about, well, City will only be sort of there until the shake gets bored or whatever, well, that was a, a signal of intent and it's it stayed and there's been a lot more investment, but Rubinho was, was the one for me. While you pass the microphone, I'll chip one of my own in. You don't mind me contributing, do you? Right, I'm going to say, and I don't know, Dennis might go sort of along with this, uh, was when Bob Scott bid for the Olympics, which initially got Manchester on the map potentially for a new stadium. It eventually manifested itself with a Commonwealth stadium. And Francis Lee, as chairman at the time, who perhaps not everybody at the time, you know, was for or against, doesn't really matter what you thought, he was instrumental in making sure that that stadium happened, uh, that it became a football stadium afterwards and no, that in no, its... No, you're wrong. Ah, right, okay. No, Dennis, tell us, tell us what happened then. No, there was, that was involved in the early days but it was David Bernstein who... who well, it, they, they were all part of it, weren't they, in different no, stages? Let, let's get the, the proportions right. Okay. <laughs> you put me right, Dennis, I don't mind. Go on, tell us what happened then. Yeah, we were told that there was a load of work to be done from the time we took over 98 to getting into the stadium in 2003. You know, there'd been initial talks, but there was absolutely loaded, loaded, loaded discussions and talks and budget meetings and, and, and because they initially wanted us to have uh, retain the track around the stadium. You know, and we sat down and said, no, there's no chance of that. We, we, it's either got to be a dedicated football stadium or we won't move. You know, we kept Main Road available in case we had to go back there if they didn't come up with the right deal. And that's why we've got the, the, tra the track outside. It's a fantastic um, complex now. But there was a load of work done between 1998 and 2003, believe me, which is the most important work. It was the five years. The whole the, the planning, the budgeting, the meetings, constant meetings, design, lots of, lots of work. The first start was started, but there's a lot of work after that, and let's just get the proportion right. And but I think David Bernstein does not get his support for the work he did in that period. Brilliant, that's fine. Let's acknowledge that. I would still argue that... Even though we all, or certainly older people, loved Main Road, I think that move to the stadium and the chance to, to, to become a, almost reinvent the club, which eventually saw taxing come in and then the shake come in, without, the club, without that stadium move, maybe none of that would have happened. So that feels to me like the, the key moments. Have you got other key moments you want to add, uh, Stuart or Sean? I've got two. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're both called injury time. Injury time, Gillingham. 
into the trying QPR. And they're both five minutes injury time. And we obviously, uh, Sean got a lovely <laughs> pass to Dickie, wasn't it? It was, I call. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's one of, one of Sean's usually controls, and the ball ends up five yards away. <laughs> and Dickie got it and scored. But that was critical. Five, that five minutes there, and then five minutes at the. Uh, give us a chance to get the equaliser and also get the winner when, the, when Sergio well, scored. You, you could also argue Sean's controlling of the ball at Wigan with his man boob um, in, the, in the, the build-up to that 99-player final uh, was also a significant moment, wasn't it, Sean? Well, I'm not going to sit here and talk about myself, so, <laughs> so no. <laughs> um, I actually think, just agreeing a little bit with Dennis here in terms of the, the Gillingham game, but the Kevin Horlock goal, the very first goal, because that gave us belief. And obviously then seeing the injury time go up, there was a real belief because, that, and then yourselves, that voice that came, come on, come on! Well, I can tell you, we heard you. And, <laughs> well, we all know what, so, so Kevin Orlock's girl gave us a lot. And, and you know, when we sort of reminisce, talk about it, it sort of just gets moved out and doesn't really get mentioned, but that was a huge turning point. And because Dennis had two, I've also got two. And the other one I would say is when Andy Morrison came. And, and Andy Morrison came, he sort of grabbed us as a, as a team. Uh, and believe me, I, we were screwed at the gaffer, Jeroyal, but I think we were more screwed at Andy. So, <laughs> so Andy wasn't going to let too much go on miss. So, you know, he sort of galvanized us and, and you know, that leadership uh, qualities that he had. And, and so I think that got us momentum and we started getting belief, uh, putting together wins and a run. So that was, the, I, I felt, for me, I felt those important points at times. Uh, Andy Common and, and Kevin Orlock's goal. Stu? Yeah. Well, I'd just like to say that I think the job that, that Dennis and the rest of that board did was fantastic. You know, they were doing it off the pitch. Sean and the rest of them were doing it on the pitch and they got City back to where, where they belong and that's, that set the basis. That, that's one thing that's always impressed me about City and about City fans, the fact that people like Sean and Andy Morrison are revered every bit as much as Sergio Aguero and David Silva. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an understanding of the history and you know this, we're, we're, we are where we are because of these guys as much as we have you know all the fantastic football and the Champions League and everything else that goes with it is all down to what guys like this have done in the past but if I'm picking out a moment I'm going to pick a more modern moment from, from the time I've been covering City uh, and it's the time that Yaya Torre stuck the ball in United's net at Wembley in that semi-final I think at that point it wasn't about City uh, sort of conquering English football or European football it was about conquering Manchester and that was the point when everyone knew that it had changed and once you change that power balance once you, City had become the top dogs in Manchester which I think they did at that moment I know United won the, the title after that but that was, that was like the, the last throws of a, of a dying dragon wasn't it um, I, think, I think once that ball had gone in the net the power balance shifted I'm not saying it won't ever shift back because football does that you know we've seen it throughout the throughout the last 150 years but I think that moment told everybody that City were were top dogs in Manchester for the foreseeable future and that's what's happened 
Some great answers, thank you. I'm going to take one more question, uh, and then we'll, we'll bring it to a conclusion. So um, the young man with the... So I'm sorry, we're not going to get to you, are we? But we'll go to the young man with the beard there, whose name is... I'm Liam. Right. I've already asked one question by Twitter, but there was one more that I wanted to ask. The I, I could sit here and ask nostalgic questions all night to, to Sean and uh, to Dennis, um, but actually this is more towards um, the two journos. First of all, Stuart, what you just said about players being revered the same way, you know, the, the, the likes of Sean and Gerard Vikings, Kevin Orlock, we love them just as much as we love the superstars that we have now. We wouldn't be who we are without them. Um, but on a more serious note, the financial fair play investigation, is this something we should be worried about or do you think this is just smoke? Very difficult question to answer because, and the simple answer is we don't know because UEFA have said absolutely nothing about it. City are saying absolutely nothing about it for good reason. Um, so we're speculating. I mean, it's not a, an area which I came into football journalism to know an awful lot about. You know, you find you find yourself having to know about a lot of things these days that you you perhaps not an expert in. So I went to um, a football finance expert, a guy called Rob Wilson at Sheffield Hallamshire, and asked him his opinion. Um, and he sort of backed up a lot of what I'd speculated about. We don't know how much. UEFA know the football league stuff was being we're being told it's a revelation nobody knew this UEFA didn't know this um, we don't know how much of that UEFA knew there's every possibility UEFA knew all of that and they came to an agreement with City because UEFA botched it really in, in some ways they, they botched the introduction of financial fair play and they always said that financial fair play wasn't to punish clubs it was to help clubs and get help them to evolve and help them to avoid uh, getting into serious debt uh, I don't want to go on about this all night but um, I think they, they made mistakes in introducing FFP and those mistakes mean that they knew that if it if they threw City out of Europe at that point, like four years ago, City would have taken a stand, they would have taken them to court, they would have, been, they would have brought the best lawyers in from around the world and they would have exposed the, the faults within UEFA's reasoning and within UEFA's introduction of FFP. Uh, and I think that's why UEFA backed off and why UEFA came to an agreement with City, which City accepted reluctantly. But I think it was a, it was something that they, uh, you know, they weren't going to take a stand unless they were going to get thrown out of Europe. Now that's speculation. I don't know this, but I, I, I put that to Rob Wilson from Sheffield Hampshire Uni, who was a football finance expert and who was consulted by the guys who did the football league stuff, and he said he thinks that he's correct. He th he thinks that you know UEFA weren't going to go to court because they weren't sure of the ground. Uh, we don't know how much of it they knew. Now, UEFA have said that they're looking into it now. Whether that's just hot air or whether they actually are, we don't know. We simply don't know. And anyone who anyone who says he does, I think they're, I think they're uh, fabricating it, shall we say? But I, it'll all become it'll all become evident in the next twelve months, I would think. 
the detail Ian, of Ian, can we get one more question down the front because I feel like I've killed the mood <laughs> you can but can I just say and I'm, I don't work for the Evening News that's why he's a chief sports writer for City because he does that type of research and he gives that type of answer and uh, I personally as a Mancunian am proud to have uh, a strong newspaper who covers City and despite what some people say about it being the MUEN or whatever it isn't and these two guys are the perfect example of why it isn't and this Talking City podcast by the way is also proof if you needed it that, that the Manchester Evening News care just as much about City as they do about United so thanks for that answer Stuart uh, go on one more question then make it a good one oh down at the front do you, you, you want to ask your question so we're giving you save the best till last right I'm uh, that'd be a good one this no pressure I'm Stephen from Manchester right uh, I shouldn't really be complaining but there's just one little thing that upsets me a bit and it's uh, some of these young players that uh, we seem to we can't seem to keep them and they end up going going off to other clubs in Europe and doing very very well and uh, I mean I saw uh, Abraham Bri- uh, Diaz playing against Fulham it was absolutely outstanding scored two two great goals was full of running the whole game and yet it looks like we're going to lose him now to Real Madrid I mean what is your, the panel's uh, opinion on that nice uplifting question to finish on <laughs> thank, thank you for that really appreciate it Simon perhaps has more expertise they both do but in this because I know you watch the young players a lot more than perhaps Stuart does yeah, I think the, the focus changed when Pep came in. You not only had to be an excellent young player to make it, you had to be an excellent young Pep player to make it. And we had someone like Kelechi Inacho who scored goals for fun and did well in the first team, but he doesn't work as a striker like Pep wants his strikers to work. So he um, he didn't make it. And Phil Foden, brilliant talent, he has to wait for his chances and... I mean, Pep talked Phil up ahead of the Lyon game. We all thought he'd start. He didn't. Um, Guardiola isn't going to pick these youngsters because any of us want him to want them to play, and he's going to make them be wait and be patient. And that patience isn't enough for for some young players. It wasn't enough for Jaden Sancho. Um, it's not likely to be enough for for Brahim Diaz. And it's a shame if you know City lose Brahim and and Jaden but um, if Phil comes through and shows his potential and is a real gem in the team then will you mind it at the end of the day I'm going to finish with the last question now because I'm going to finish on an up they only need to be short answers these guys and all four of you can answer this one City going to win the league this year yes yes that's one that's two yeses yes and Dennis a thumbs up from Dennis Fellows on the podcast. Thanks very much to everybody who's been in the audience tonight here at the National Football Museum. Uh, thanks very much to all those listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, give it five stars, give it a review. And uh, this Talking City live podcast might not be next, back next week, but there'll be another one that, well, we'll be live when we're doing it, but we'll be live when it's on there. You know what I mean? Thank you and good night. Thank you.